0: Well, hello everyone, and I'm very happy to say that the 21st Rewrite is back after a long summer without any new episodes being posted. I personally really needed a pause from the podcast for a while, which I guess is all rather understandable considering the year we've been having, but I really hope you're well and staying positive, and my heart, of course, goes out to all of you who have been suffering or have lost someone during this pandemic. I just wanted to start this episode seeing as it's been a while since I posted anything to go back and just start this introduction by talking about my long-term vision, which I have for this podcast, which now I think is something to truly be focusing on. I've had many conversations over the last couple of years in which I've had to describe what the podcast is about, and generally I say it's a screenwriting podcast for films made in the 21st century, and in a way that's true, but what I really want it to be is Something that's kind of the equivalent of Melvin Bragg's In Our Time, but for screenplays. Really deep conversations about the stories that are told in these films with a level of analysis that isn't necessarily possible within the typical constraints of film reviews in newspapers, for example, or interviews with filmmakers on television. So all of my episodes are long, because there's often so much to talk about, and I feel that the best ideas do take time to develop, and they develop over the course of an entire conversation. So personally, I feel that the best way to achieve this vision now is to feature special guests who either have specialist knowledge, or in some cases, when I'm fortunate enough to speak with them, the writers of the films themselves. I want every episode to be engaging for you, the listener, so from now on, this is going to be the format, just me and a different guest each time. And I'm really thankful to Alan, who was the original co-host of this podcast, for all the help he gave me and all the conversations we had, which you can still listen to in the library of the back catalogue of the 21st Rewrite. So one thing you can do is you can let me know what you think about the new episode. I'm always happy to hear from you. There's a contact Section on the twenty-first rewrite dot com website, and thank you to those of you who wrote to me during the break I took this year. I have some exciting news in that I do have some great guests lined up for the next episodes, and I'll reveal those surprises when the time comes. Uh, but this week, I'm going to be talking to Ralph Leonard. Now, Ralph caught my attention as he has done for many readers, I think, with his insightful articles about history, politics, and identity that he's been publishing via Aereo and unheard, and I'm very glad that he could join me for this recording to kickstart the next phase of The 21st Rewrite. We've got a great conversation coming up about an incredible screenplay, There Will Be Blood, written by Paul Thomas Anderson, and the book that inspired it, Oil, by Upton Sinclair. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. So The 21st Rewrite is back, and I really appreciate your patience during that time. Now, let's look to the future and get started with this latest episode. So, I'm very, very pleased to have you join me today, Ralph, to discuss a film. Uh, Thank you very much. So, today we're going to be talking about Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. Do you want to just begin by saying why this film has been something that's inspired you?
1: I think because I do consider There Will Be Blood, what you may call a an American epic, in the sense that it's a film that is about an important moment in American history, which is the early, literally the early twentieth century, where modern America as we know it was in the process of being born and also I think it has one of the best performances by an actor in a film ever by Daniel Day-Lewis as Daniel Plainview and which is brilliant not just in terms of the Oscar clips but also the more subtle forms of acting in it like the way he looks at people, how he glances at certain characters, how he speaks and everything like that I just find it all amazing and also the um, bit at the end where he says uh, I drink your milkshake is always I find that brilliant as well <laughs> so that's why
0: yeah I mean just rewatching the film last night that was the moment you know it's all leading up to that moment yeah and it it just doesn't fail to satisfy every single time I watch yeah. it it's interesting how you call it an American epic. It's interesting to watch this development of Paul Thomas Anderson's career because he is kind of a native son of Los Angeles and has actually grown up around the areas where most of his stories are told, which is, mm. is always interesting when you know a writer or a filmmaker has this engagement with the world they come from specifically. Yeah. It goes back to that statement that a, a poet should be both local and universal yeah, um, yeah. And with Paul Thomas Anderson, you can really see, you know, from his early work in stuff like Boogie Nights and Magnolia and then Punch Drunk Love, which are all films kind of set in contemporary or recent times in Los Angeles. And then there's kind of this awakening in, in his work in the next two films in There Will Be Blood and The Master, where he starts to really question what foundations this place is built on, because kind of like yeah. uh, Dubai is becoming now, it's this sudden springing up of extreme wealth in the desert, in a way. Yeah, And so yeah, definitely. he went back to this early source material from Upton Sinclair, who, of course, is a very notable writer in his own rights and also was a prominent socialist in the, the early 1900s who ran for governor of California, who took an extreme interest in the development of the state and, and all of the political implications of the wealth inequalities that were rising up mm. as, the, as the American dream spread west. Mm. So I think we've got a lot to look at, but it's always interesting to, to see that in terms of a local person taking on this, this material, as opposed to, say, one of my other favorite American epics about the manifest destiny and, and moving into the, the furthest reaches all the way to the Pacific is Sergio Leone's uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. You always will get a fascinating insight from a foreigner, but it's it's also fascinating to see how a local kind of
1: takes it on as well. So. Right, because it's about interrogating America's founding myths, in a way. The stories Americans tell about themselves in their own culture. So it's, it's always interesting to get both sides of that view from an outsider looking in and an insider looking in as well, or looking out, you could say.
0: So I'm just going to start off with a little bit of a biography about Upton Sinclair because I think he's one of these writers that we're only Vaguely aware of nowadays, um, especially outside the US. Uh, both you and, and me are are from England originally, and so potentially, um, if we had gone through the school system in America, we might have been introduced to the jungle. But I doubt there's even that much of a likelihood nowadays that every student is really engaging with that one. But Upton Sinclair is kind of an interesting character. He's definitely a man of his time in in the good and the bad senses of, of that word, which, or <laughs> well, that phrase which we hear a lot nowadays. But he was born kind of in that bridge between two worlds. He, his father was a liquor salesman who was an alcoholic, which is something that is extremely common in the pre-Prohibition era. When we look back at the history of Prohibition, one of the things that really stands out is this this stark divide between Generally, working class men, but also richer families as well that drank excessive amounts of alcohol. Okay. And then his mother was a strict Episcopalian and a teetotaler, yeah. <laughs> and her family was from established wealth in in, in Baltimore. And uh, you know, his father's family had been ruined. His father was from the South, and his family had been ruined by the Civil War and uh, the Reconstruction era. And so he had grown up in these these two worlds, and he decided much like his character bunny in the book oil which is the source material for there will be blood
1: yeah
0: Uh, bunny is the character that corresponds to young hw he grew up kind of positioned between the two worlds and chose the path of siding with the common man siding with the worker he went undercover to investigate and uh and write the jungle and then became a prominent socialist uh politician yeah so tell me a little bit about what you thought about the book. Was this the first time you were um, engaging with Upton Sinclair as a writer?
1: As a novelist, yes. But I have been vaguely aware of him put as in his politics because he was a sympathiser with the Bolshevik Revolution and wrote articles in, in defence of that. So I've been familiar with him on that front. But as a novelist, this is the first time I've read any of his work and what i find interesting about it from what i've read is the relationship between ross and bunny the father and son uh, which this is obviously interpreted in there will be blood a little bit more and like you said he was born in between these two worlds and part of his um, evolution to standing with the common man against the oppressive bourgeoisie is he has to have this emotional break with his father who is this sort of ruthless capitalist who is out for profit at any cost and and also bunny sort of starts to interrogate the materialistic lifestyle that a lot of this quick wealth brings how people can go from having nothing to having an abundance of riches in no time because of this substance called oil that you dig into the ground. That part was very interesting to me.
0: Yeah. And then there's kind of that idea underlying it, which definitely comes through and there will be blood as well as the concept of land ownership, all of this accumulation of wealth, which uh, the Father is able to to do is because of being able to manipulate the land rights by being able to get people to sign over their land to a developer who will use it to extract oil but the the real fact is that the oil is it doesn't belong to anyone. no one put it there. It yeah. was there way before humanity came along and came <laughs> it's It's fossilized material yeah, and so I, yeah. The, the question of who owns it and who should benefit from the wealth this is a uh, something that his father teaches him the the ways which you know we recognize today as the the american ideal that's most embodied in the republican party of you, you've got to work hard no one should get a free ride in this life and he's hearing all of this stuff from from his father and it's it's a slow development the the kid in the book is much older. He is, I believe, about 16 when when the book starts. Yeah. And in the film, he's about seven or eight. He's he's a much younger boy, which I think emphasizes the innocence and his ability to really take part in the events. He's more
1: of a, an observer in the film. And another part he evolves on is money, because early in the book, when he's younger, his father sort of warns him that, people will attempt to take his money, they'll go after his property and after his success but then as he grows older Barney sort of recognises that money is how you know, rich people maintain their monopolies on production, politics and how they maintain their authority within the policies of the state so that they can get more land and kick people out of the land that was once their home, and all you know, and all the rest of that brutal process of accumulation and production, and primitive accumulations—Marx once put it—and all the rest of it.
0: Yeah. So, Bunny, as a, when he's a teenager, and in, in the book, he's being introduced from what is normality, which is the way his dad has always done things, and I think that's done so cleverly by Upton Sinclair. By he writes a lot of the early chapters of the book in the second person he says you were driving along with dad and that really tries to involve the reader into the psychology of what it's like to be the kid being brought up in this way yeah and where the limits of of being able to see how things how the world functions yeah are all controlled by this this man and then he starts going to school and he starts being told other things He's, yeah. His his views are challenged by the teacher who says, there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of bribery in this state. And then his dad says, I'm going to take you for a civics class. I'm going to show you how it's done. And then goes off and bribes people and, and shows how necessary it is. If this couldn't be done, he, he kind of argues, then, you know, no one would get rich. This is the way it has to be. And slowly, Bunny starts to have to pick one path. Um which is largely due to the involvement of Paul, who is a character who is pretty much dropped, just really only has one big scene by the time we get to the final version of the film. But Paul is an exemplary character for him in the book who teaches him about socialism.
1: Mm. I also read that second-person device is almost like his conscience is... Sort of talking to him as if there's an internal conversation that his conscience is talking to Bunny himself. That you went along with your father, you did this, you did that. That's almost how I read it. Sure.
0: That's a really good idea, yeah, because then you get into that duality of the soul idea. Because I mean, Upton Sinclair, despite being, um, you know, an atheist on paper and someone involved in, as many people in the early uh, 1900s were, they wanted to move beyond the constraints of religion, influenced by Marx, of course, and religion being the opium of the masses, influenced by Nietzsche. But there is obviously the fact that this is, America at this time is a wholly Christian society, so even to go against that society is still kind of done in Christian terms. And so there's this idea that, which is constantly running through and is emphasized even more by Paul Thomas Anderson, is uh, you know, the idea of the soul and things that have been done in life. Can they atone for the, the wrongs that they've done in order to exploit people, in order to
1: accumulate this wealth? But also if we're talking about religion, I think there's also a, an underlying critique about how with this advent of this um, big, Capitalist revolution taking place in America that religion itself would be dragged into you know the cesspit of materialism and commodification. So even religion itself would become a business and be corrupted as such in this way. And I think you, um, Paul Thomas Anderson, also presses on this in There Will Be Blood as well.
0: Yeah, he definitely has that cynicism um, which he uses the character of Eli very well to, to demonstrate his, his evolution by the end of the film. One of my favorite quotes out of the book that we read, um, there, there are some great moments. I would recommend people to read it, but I wouldn't recommend it as a book to learn too much about There Will Be Blood because it's definitely a very, at most a very, very loose adaptation it's more material that has served as inspiration for writing another story. Mm. But when you read Oil, you will find familiar scenes. Uh, Eli and Paul are certainly there, and the, the Sunday Ranch, which I think is called the Wilkins Ranch. Most of the characters have their, their names changed. But one of my favorite lines, which, which just kind of sums up a lot of what uh, Upton Sinclair is trying to do, which is uh, expose the hypocrisy at the heart of this, is when um, the oil man, uh, J. Arnold Ross, bribes the local political leaders in order to get his road built. He says he'll donate something like $5,000 to the Republican Party. And as they leave, Bunny says to him, But dad, I, I thought you were a Democrat. And there's this sense that all this corruption just ruins everyone's morality. <laughs> that no one stands for anything in, in the game of making money, whether it's religion, whether it's political beliefs,
1: morality, all of this just gets corrupted down. And I think in the latter part of the book, you see Bunny sort of struggle with this sort of cynical, like vulgar materialist worldview play out with the various female characters within it.
0: Even early on, there's a so. This is a bigger family in the book. It's not just uh, the father and son, but I believe there are. There's at least one sister. There's an aunt, and uh, there's definitely more of a sense of family life. So the the H W, the kid in in the film, is illiterate. He has just been completely raised by Plainview to serve as essentially a cute face, to help him seem as a family man when he's making these deals. It helps him gain the sympathy of local people when they're deciding who to sell their their land rights to. Uh, whereas in the book, he, there is more of a family life. And um, his sister, she gets caught up in the excitement of being her not being out in the fields and working like Bunny is with, with Dad. And actually taking part in the extraction of oil which is something that he is he emphasizes all the time he wants to teach bunny every single aspect of of the oil business so that he can run the company by himself when he gets older and his sister there's there's another great quote in there about how bunny views her because she's hanging out with all of these these rich people and he says he thinks that these high society people know nothing and they have nothing to talk about than each other Yeah. And so he's also noticing that that like all of the stuff that starts happening around the families that do accumulate wealth, it's never about thinking how to use that wealth. It's more about status. It's more about power. Yeah, finding power, finding these mundane things. And he he mentions the school system, which at the time obviously, you know, no one will stay on till eighteen in the school system if they need to go out and work. So the only people who are left at high school, the only teenagers are the ones who don't need to work, the ones that have money. Mm. So this starts to come to his awareness as well as that they seem to be obsessed with high school sports with football and and baseball and things like that and it's got nothing to do with anything meaningful
1: as far as he can see. Yeah, because at least with his father he is at least trying to build something even if that something is just dedicated to accumulating wealth, he, he, at least it's creative of a sort, whereas with the high society voluptuaries, is just frivolous, meaningless um, activities that doesn't create anything. It's almost like they're very parasitical in a way.
0: And so that is, I think that is one of the reasons in both versions, that H.W. or Bunny sticks with his father for so long is because it's harder to see another path forward because his, his dad argues so well that hard work is the most important thing in life. Mm-hmm. And in the absence of that, even Plainview has this this doubt in the film when he's offered a million dollars for all the, the wells he owns. could essentially retire a million dollars at this time is akin to a billion it's you know (laughs) yeah with the with the inflation that's gone on in the last 100 years i think it's hard for us to remember what being a millionaire meant when pretty much every house in california costs a million dollars nowadays a millionaire at that time was a true billionaire it was you will never work again. You can own multiple properties with this money. You can own a railroad if you want. You, you are rich. It's, mm. it's the, the stereotypical monopoly man uh, comes from this time period as well, you know, with the, the suit and the, the monocle and everything. Mm. That was a millionaire.
1: Mm.
0: And you mentioned
1: the emphasis on hard work. And it always reminds me of um, how, you know, the Protestant work ethic, and how central that has been to American culture, and as well how early capitalist society sort of saw themselves. So like, you know, the Dutch Republic, it was a big thing. Uh, You know, Max Weber wrote about it, how the Protestant work ethic helped produce this immense wealth and material abundance of capitalism, because to produce all of this commodities and uh, stuff you know, it requires a lot of hard work, especially from the proletariat who the the capitalists have to hire to do the dirty work for them.
0: It's it's quite a clever argument in a way, because and what it misses and this is obviously what the the socialist writers like Sinclair are pointing out, is that it's not entirely true though. Definitely that you can be slaving away for twelve hours a day in the oil fields and basically make only enough to get by, only enough to feed yourself for that week while the owner becomes a millionaire. That, and that's the, that's the bit that the, the kid needs to learn along, along the route yeah. of this story.
1: Because um, the Puritan work ethic was that work itself is ennobling and dignifying and godly no matter what you get for it. Because to be idle or sloth-like is a sin. You're disobeying God. And I think that sort of mentality has been there in American culture, but in a more secular form as well. And I think that's what is also there in the book. Yeah. And this is something that,
0: as I mentioned, I think before, or at least I'm trying to develop this idea, is that they do become, in a way, a little bit inseparable just because of the Extent to which Christianity has influenced almost every political thinker in the West, mm-hmm. that a lot of the arguments to find different ways through still depend on decisions or assumptions that are made as a result of Christianity. And so, in this new state of California, I mean, California becomes a part of the Union in, I think, 1848. Yeah. Um, so it's still a new state. And California was vastly underdeveloped by the Spanish colonial government. Mm. At at one point, I believe, you know, the 1700s, there were just a handful of missionaries living in the entire state and about 7,000 indigenous people. And to think what it's become now, you know, an economy basically the same size as most European nations, Mm. like France or Britain, it's almost inconceivable how, how quickly it suddenly sprung up. And the main impetus, of course, of the Americans wanting the state was the gold rush. Yeah. And then this is followed by the, the black gold of oil. Yeah. And
1: it's almost like, you know, in the bit with the Bible where God blesses the Israelites with bread in the desert to help them create a new kingdom, yeah, in the middle of the desert.
0: Yeah, it's tied in so well to American mythology. And you'll find it in in many states. Utah especially, of course, and but yeah, California.
1: Yeah. A lot of American culture has has that sort of idea of the new Israel, that we, the blessed people, will go to this desolate land and make water out of this desert, you know, build a new civilization out of it. You know it's it has a very deep history and it, you know and you see this in um, there will be blood where you know daniel crane gives a speech about a loaf of bread again harkening back to the bit in the bible of god blessing the israelites
0: so let's i think this is a perfect point to get stuck into the material of there will be blood specifically i think we've given a nice decent overview of where this source material comes from paul thomas anderson was drawn to so Oil, he, he read the book, thought it would make an interesting adaptation to the screen, and I believe he was working on a project, as, as kind of often happens, he was working on a project which he was struggling with, and found that maybe adapting an existing material would help him get to the next, the next stage of what he wanted to do. One of the benefits of Oil, especially as Adoptant Sinclair, goes into lots of details about how this whole business works. He, he describes uh, the scenery, the businesses, the small restaurants and uh, cafes that you can stop by. He describes exactly how the derricks are set up, how you drill for oil, all of this in so much detail that it, it obviously, can, for a writer, that can enrich your mind, give you a lot of material to work with. And then Paul Thomas Anderson decides, I think, very wisely to focus this story on Plainview himself and his transformation—it's a, it's a real character study—and yeah. um, we start out in, in 1898 in New Mexico, where he's he's working alone and digging for silver. Yeah. So we see his this formation of the character It starts out with him searching for silver. Uh, he gets injured himself in the first the first scene, which is the the one where he falls. Down the uh, the silver shaft after using dynamite. Yeah. Then of course it's the next scene is is him drilling for oil with some other
1: prospectors and and that's where he's very lucky because he almost dies from an accident, but he kills somebody else. But if he moved three feet away, then he would have died, and his story wouldn't have happened. And and it goes to show that. A lot of the times with the prospectors discovering for oil at the time, most of them failed, while only a few ever succeeded, and they needed a bit of luck or whether fate was always on their side, however you want to interpret it. But that was the case.
0: Yeah, Plainview himself uh, describes that in the biblical language of of the time as well in an early line in the screenplay, he says, the oil game is like heaven. Everyone is called, but few are chosen. Yeah. But essentially, he's describing the same situation, which is, life is unfair. This is basically a lottery, and a lot of people are going to lose out yeah. for some of us to become very, very rich. And one of the interesting things when you read a screenplay is you learn the names of these characters who are basically nameless in a film. Uh, but the guy is called Ailman, is the uh, the father of H. W. who dies in that accident, and so Plainview decides to take on his son. We do establish later on in the film that he is infertile, so that's that's one interesting aspect of of his character. So he chooses this path of becoming a father, and some in some way it's for a cynical reason, but I do think. Paul Thomas Anderson leaves that open to a little bit of interpretation. There's certainly a lot of scenes where he does cry. He holds his, his boy close and he's, he's genuinely worried about him. He, he is obviously very torn up when he has to send him away. I do think he's, he's not particularly saying that Plainview only wanted to use this. Maybe that was the initial spark was to use this kid for some gain, you know, to to help him manipulate people. But he does grow fond of him. It it is the only family he has, really. But then you
1: could could sort of see it as, like, he's fond of him in the way that a child is fond of a toy, in a way that, obviously, when he, he loses it, but he gets over it.
0: Yeah, and he always chooses the path of continuing with his ambition rather than stopping... Because that is uh, that is the deal that's offered to him, right? Is that he could retire and just take care of his son. And he chooses to go on with the oil business.
1: Yeah. Daniel. Also, the one time where you do see like an opening of a human connection is later on in the movie when Henry, his supposed brother, comes in to his life. And you do see there is a of a genuine human relationship until he sort of starts to think that Henry isn't who he says he is and then that's when I think any chance for any human connection for Daniel is closed because Henry was the one person who he basically shared his most intimate secrets with what he what he really thinks the facade that he gives to other people's dropped and you really saw who he was and then for him to feel that he was deceived into that or his opportunity to be vulnerable ends and he's just becomes a total sociopath (laughs) who doesn't feel anything for anybody.
0: It's easy to draw out some sort of, you know, grotesque villain in film, especially we, we like to see at the, the Disney level of story, it's like a, an all-out villain against an all-out hero. Yeah. But when you get into more nuanced and uh, more complicated storylines, what you really want to see is a character who could be you or could be anyone, and that is kind of where Plainview ends up, I think, is in the way he starts out, he's still a human, and we He's still a person with the same kind of weaknesses facing these issues of, you know, who can he trust? He's faced with loneliness. He's, he's doing all this solitary, grueling work. He's, he's injuring himself. He's living in horrendous conditions. But as he starts to rise up, as he starts to, you know, make his way up that ladder of success, we also start to see how much of his humanity he's willing to shed as things progress as he's more and more capable of manipulating of seeing people as objects to be manipulated, to get to his own ends. Yeah. And that is something that, uh, that's kind of the heart of this film in a way is kind of that, that sense of like, you shouldn't judge until you've really experienced something. It's, it's saying, do you really think you would have been better than him if you were, if you were able to make this much money in the same way?
1: Yeah. and, I also think the reason why he completely crashes after his encounter with Henry is because he got a taste of his own medicine from Henry. Because Henry was trying to manipulate him by claiming to be his brother and knowing you know, about his family and for him to feel that he was being used like he uses other people, struck a chord with him. Yeah, But then the result of that is that he completely doubles down on his previous habits, even on a more pathological level than before. Because in his um, conversation with Henry, he sort of reveals that he, he's very envious. He only thinks in terms of competition. He doesn't want anybody else to succeed. And he reveals himself to be a miserable mis- that misanthrope who just hates people. And when he's talking like this with Henry, he thinks Henry is like him in this way. But then when he realizes that Henry is just another person, quote-unquote, then he kills him and disposes of him like an object.
0: Yeah, it it goes down to something very primal, this idea of the bond of family being in some way stronger than the bonds that you can create with people who are outside your family but you actually share more in common with, which is kind of one of the fundamental principles of, you know, creating a democratic society that's not based on different factions, different clans. That That's like the extreme version of it, right? It's like all these different families yeah. opposed against each other, which still kind of exists in some cultures today. Yeah, so like
1: blood and feud, vendetta culture, yeah.
0: But it gets into him like he feels H.W., even if he's not really his son, and maybe that's why he always holds him at a little bit of a distance. He still thinks, well, he's my son. I can I can trust him with my secrets. I can take him into this inner world. I can, I can show him everything that I know. And that's his willingness to invite Henry in as well. He would never have done that to someone who wasn't supposedly family.
1: Yeah. As you say, he's, an, he's a very lonely, isolated figure. And in a way, Daniel Plainview is sort of the inverse of, um, you know, that film, It's a Wonderful Life. The James Stewart film? Yeah, yes. And he says something along the lines of family and friends are more important than money. Whereas for Daniel Plainview, it's almost the opposite. That if he has to sacrifice family and friends for the pursuit of money then he will.
0: That is absolutely true. Um, the it's a Wonderful Life is our our family's um, Christmas film. Yeah, uh, My mother always puts it on at Christmas, uh, so I've seen it countless times. And, yeah, notably that film as well uh, involves the intervention of angels directly in the storyline. It's a guardian angel that kind of guides um, James Stewart's character through the story and helps him take the the correct, you know, Christian moral high ground and absolutely yeah. there will be blood is an exact reversal of that storyline. It's it's this dissent, um, which does involve committing ever increasing sins, you could call them, or immoralities. Just it it goes on and on. But it, it starts with just a simple spark, which is something that in principle is not too bad a thing to say, which is he feels that he should earn uh, the fruits of his labor, that if he works hard, he risks his life. He goes out and does all of these extremely difficult jobs. Why shouldn't he enrich himself? Why shouldn't he be able to provide a better life for himself and for his, his son? But slowly he loses, completely loses track of any good that was inherent in that view and becomes obsessed with the goal and not the process of getting there.
1: Yeah, even when he gets baptized in church, it's completely instrumental. Because right after he, he confesses his sins, how he's abandoned his child, and how he's, you know, lusted for money and he's greedy, afterwards he, he sort of whispers under his breath, Now I have the pipeline. Like and that really shows like the sort of character he is.
0: Always remaining focused on that that goal. Yeah. At any cost. And again he takes that moment as not as just being instrumental, but he's he's so bothered by how he, he got there and the thing he had to do that it then becomes a personal vendetta against Eli. Yeah. For the, the final act of the film is about how long he's held on to that vendetta, how long he's just been furious that he had to, in his view, kind of debase himself mm-hmm. and, and submit to Eli's authority just for a moment, which is something that definitely seems to haunt him in a way that if he was just a cynical, you know, I'm doing this just to enrich myself, he wouldn't care. There's something even worse going on inside him, which is that he's holding on to this hatred yeah, it's a very, very fascinating character study here.
1: Yeah, and if we can go into the in relationship between Eli and Daniel, it's pretty obvious to state that what's going on is this conflict between religion and commerce and how similar or different they are. And obviously, Paul Thomas Anderson is um, showing... How similar they are to each other because both Eli and Daniel are trying to sell something they sell themselves their personality you know they sell a promise of riches whether of material abundance in the case of Daniel or spiritual fulfillment in the case of Eli both are good at sermonizing whether it's Daniel's I'm an oil man speech or the speech with the loaf of bread or Eli, you know, with his very, I suppose, charismatic, you know, bombastic evangelical Christian sermons in his church. And both are false prophets of a sort. Both adopt very false personas. Like obviously Daniel portrays himself as a family man to you know, endear himself with the communities he, he comes across who he will have to exploit to get the oil he wants. Or Eli adopts the persona of Paul at the very beginning and goes to Daniel to entice him to take the land his family's on so that he can get a cut of money from him. And Eli, of course adopts the false persona of this pious christian preacher again for material gain for his lust for power and domination
0: yeah i'm i really want to get into discussing uh the character of eli but just as we're kind of going through the story i think it's i'm going to go back to that speech you mentioned about uh, plainview first his speech about i'm an oil man it's very cleverly done Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, there's something very interesting about people who are—they express themselves in kind of a different way, I think. Uh, and he's certainly reading this screenplay, having read many, many screenplays. Reading this, it's—you can see it's—it's it's done with that director-writer mindset. He—he he does mention a lot of camera movements, music, things that uh, not all screenwriters include because you know, they don't know if their project's going to get made. He's seeing it as a film fundamentally, and he's writing down the bare bones ideas of his film. Like Tarantino. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Tarantino's the opposite. He'll go into lots and lots of details that actually can't be conveyed on the screen. Um, (laughs) And that's something he, he really likes to do because he loves film and he knows someone will seek out that screenplay and find something extra in it. And I do think we can find extra stuff in this screenplay, but... What he's doing at the the beginning is he gives us six pages that sort are of very visual. Uh, that's that's all of Plainview's history, and then you get the oil man speech, which is a whole speech which basically takes up a, a page, and that's where you get to see who he starts out as really, like who this character is for the main part of There Will Be Blood. We've we've got a bit of context about his past. But now we see him as assured, confident, uh, he's 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 displaying wealth. but it's all an act, and it's I think it is built on an element of dishonesty. Maybe it's not entirely fictitious. Maybe it's not all lies. it's It's also kind of a negotiation tactic. He does know his business, though. He's not making up his the fact that he does know the oil business. He knows how it works, but he wants to win and he's competitive. That's when Paul Thomas Anderson just very briefly refers back to a scene which takes up a big part of the beginning of oil, which is all the different warring families of one one neighborhood who can't seem to agree on how they're going to sell the land, how they're going to parcel it up, who's going to gain, who's going to profit, in, in which ratios based on the amount of land they own. And Paul Thomas Anderson just writes this nice little line at the end of that scene where he says, we witness human dignity go completely out the window. And I think that perfectly sums up what happens, you know, with
1: yeah, the first whiff of that's, that's a good lie. Yeah. Very good line.
0: With the first whiff of money suddenly that's it. Like chaos ensues, you know, and that's when we see what people are really made of. It's a very, yeah. As you say, like a very, very smart line. Right. You see
1: that with Eli. as well, when the, the the second that he thinks there could be oil on his family's ranch, that's when his um, egoism takes over and he will do anything to get it, even if it means going against his own father. And that's when you see his pure greed and narcissism.
0: That idea of human dignity, I think... Sinclair is, is quite critical of the revivalist religious movements in, in terms of the dignity. I think he, he displays in the book a, a kind of almost concern for the people who are rolling about on the floor, speaking in tongues, that there's something very odd about this to him because uh, he, he draws so much attention to it. And, you know, you're witnessing this through the eyes of, of Bunny just how bizarre this this all seems seemingly people are just normal one second and then the next that's it they're rolling about on the floor and and shaking
1: yeah daniel you see that with um, daniel plainview when he first goes into the church and the look on his face just reveals the contempt he has for all these people who he sees as sheep basically for this charlatan on stage <laughs> who's taken advantage of them, and I think it confirms his very cynical view of human beings yeah,
0: yeah and that's when we get back into the the nods towards kind of the Marxist view of of religion again, that these people are willing to believe anything because they live in such poverty, they have such poor access to education in sinclair's version there's a mention, you know, that the only book in the in the household is the Bible. That's the only book they have access to. Yeah. And so and this idea that Eli can heal the sick when clearly he has no real healing powers it's all an act. It's something people start to believe when they get caught up in the, the theatre of it all. Yeah. And that's the idea, right? The the opium of the people idea is that this is what keeps them going and living and tolerating this the the very difficult conditions they live in i mean the you know pre-depression era lenin
1: used the phrase spiritual booze to refer to religion as like kind of the way alcoholics view alcohol the alcohol is meant to dull the pain and emptiness that they feel within a heartless alienating world i mean marx in that If you read the whole passage of that religion religions the opiate of the masses, Marx refers to religion as the heart of a heartless world, spirit of a spiritless situation. And that's how a lot of people treat religion. They're one thing that gives them hope, that provides them with some kind of spiritual fulfillment in a world that is very heartless, cutthroat, and alienate
0: Yeah. So a screenplay is built on conflict. That is often the driving force for any film. There are, there are some exceptions, but in the vast majority of, of films, what, what you need is some conflict to, to push you through the story. So that's when we've basically set up these two sides. It wouldn't be much of a story if Plainview just went in and unopposed took over this land, developed it, and, and made his money. And it's, it's such an interesting battle, though, because it's not, it's not the battle between rival oil companies for the same thing. It's, in, in a sense, and what Eli tries to suggest at when he's kind of starting out and becoming more popular as a preacher, is that actually there could be more of a symbiotic relationship between the two of them. Plainview could bring the oil workers to town and he could pay them their wages and then they can go straight through the door into Eli's church and give those wages over to the church. Mm. That's the symbiotic relationship that Eli's looking for. He's looking for joint ownership of the land and and profits from the oil as well.
1: Both religion and capital need each other.
0: And with Plainview refusing to go down that path, that's what sets off the conflict because Plainview is... Because he's so distrustful and so competitive, he's unwilling to work with Eli in that way.
1: And then Eli tries to screw him over. And a good uh, way of looking at how Daniel snubs him is when they're opening the well, Eli proposes to Daniel that he wants to bless the well himself. So that, obviously for Eli, it sort of fills his narcissistic want for attention and to be the guy at the center of it all, but then when the opening ceremony happens, Daniel snubs him completely and I think picks his sister to cut the ribbon. And then you can see on Eli's face that feeling of rejection and humiliation. You can tell that he starts to resent Daniel for that, for taking what he wanted away from him.
0: And every character, you, you need each character to have not only clear wants and ambitions and goals, but it's, it's good to emphasize what their weakness is as well. And Eli specifically, his weakness is, is one of the cardinal sins. It's the sin of pride. It's this belief that he is the chosen son, I think is the, the terminology he that gets used throughout the film, going back to this kind of, again, biblical imagery of Cain and Abel, which son has been blessed by God, which one has been chosen. And the mistake is, even if he is the chosen son, even if he is the one that supposedly has healing powers, it's his belief that it's that pride, it's that sense that he is special, which is is going to be part of his downfall. So Eli himself... That is his weakness, I think, is is pride, and the battle that that plays out between him and Plainview is is very much on that. I think when he asks to bless the well, the way he wants to be introduced is uh, as a proud son of these hills who tended yeah. his father's flocks.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's,
0: it's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, these little lines that are just scattered here and there, like they they say so much, and that's something you're really aiming for when you're when you're doing a screenplay. I think is to throw in a very key idea with just the minimum number of words because the audience knows exactly what you mean when you say that.
1: Mm. <laughs> yeah, and obviously with the characters like this, the best way to do it, as you say, is very subtle and be economical with the words. Uh, you know, as the saying goes, show, don't tell, or don't force it in. Like, as if you're sort of forcing it down the audience's throats. Like when you sort of let it flow smoothly, that's the best way you can get the point across.
0: Yeah. I I feel Sinclair has a few ups and downs in that regard. I mean, certainly in the early 1900s, there is a bit more sermonizing in literature, comparing him to a writer like uh, John Steinbeck, for example. I feel Steinbeck is a bit more modern, than Sinclair in, in his ability to kind of just show you a scene and have you understand what's going on without necessarily having to explain it. Sinclair tends to go off on a bit of a tangent here and there to to kind of really make sure you got the point. But for, for more modern writing, I don't think we need that anymore. It's, it's about giving the audience credit.
1: Yeah, in a way, Upton Sinclair is a bit like Ayn Rand, better in that both are very political figures and they use literature to sort of promote their ideological or philosophical points of view. Obviously, in Oil and the Jungle, you see it's socialism, and he uses those novels as a device to talk about problems that he sees with you know, the exploitation of the working class, and the need for socialism to help the oppressed and ex- most exploited, and obviously with Ayn Rand, she uses her novels, you know, *The Fountainhead* and *At the to you know sermonize on the great joys of capitalism and individualism, and why altruism is a bad thing, and all the rest of it.
0: Yeah, and then if you if you compare that to to Steinbeck, for example, with *The Grapes of Wrath*. I don't think he ever specifically tells the audience what to think, but he allows the audience to get involved with the, yeah. the characters and see how they suffer and then make their own judgments about whether or not this is a fair way for people to live if the response of the American government to the, the, the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl.
1: Mm.
0: Um, he just lays it out as, as documentary, but with a bit of melodrama in there so that you feel it which is a much more modern way of doing it and what Paul Thomas Anderson is doing.
1: Yeah. And obviously, to go back to Eli, I think what his story is showing within that time period is how religion, as I sort of mentioned before, becomes an enterprise, becomes a business itself. So, capital itself corrupts religion in this way, which causes um, preachers to. Become entrepreneurs like Daniel Plainview, and obviously this has been something that's been talked about in America. In America, how churches are big business. There's this uh, thing called the prosperity gospel, which is a trend within specifically American Christianity that promotes again the accumulation of wealth as a divine good in itself and want for. Material want and uh, abundance as doing the Lord's work itself. There's also another film about this called Elmer Gantry. Have you heard of it? Uh, no, I haven't seen this one. No, it's from the 1950s, which is a critique of evangelical religion in the 1920s, which, and obviously it, t- it makes a uh, critique of you know, these preachers who are clearly sort of charlatans and self-interested egoists using religion for their own gain and pump out sort of nonsense and again to deceive people for their own material gain. And Eli, I think, is sort of like a precursor to that in the early 1900s.
0: And what, one thing that Eli learns, and he's only meant to be 15, I mean, I know that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was very keen to get uh, Paul Dano in as, the, as this specific actor, but the original vision is that Eli is, is definitely still a boy, he's, he's 15, and what he learns is that by utilizing certain phrases to speak in the language of the Bible to say that he's had a, a revelation or the Lord has told me. Yeah. It gives him this, this authority with people that is much above what they would give to any normal 15-year-old boy. And so he's taking this power that's inherent in religion, the way that people will submit themselves to its authority because of how they've been brought up, how they've been raised to, to respect the authority of religion. And yeah. gradually we start to see, again, it, like you mentioned about the prosperity gospel it doesn't entirely fit in with the Christian message, which yeah. is to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, To you know, that money is irrelevant to living a good life. You don't need it. You can just give it up, that kind of message of, of Christianity.
1: Yeah, there is a very strong anti-commerce, anti-materialist message that goes right through the Bible and the New Testament in particular, you know, and a lot of Christian thought, is very hostile to commerce because they feel it sort of encourages various sins such as lust, pride, greed, materialism, covetousness. So you sort of covet material things as opposed to focusing on your own inner spiritual health and dedicating your life to the will of the Lord.
0: Yeah. And, that, and then that goes into the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments, of course, is to not, you know, covet thy neighbors. Good.
1: Um, yeah. And thy neighbor's wife, because back then exactly. women were property of men. Yeah.
0: And so that's kind of tying into all of this, I think. It's, it's very, um, this battle is being set up here. So we've got the church on one side, the commerce on the other and to to some extent there is the symbiotic relationship does get established early on eli does secure a promise of $5000 for his church in order to sell the land a promise that plainview has no intention of keeping it turns out yeah you, we also see how hw has been led to believe his father as well he when Mary asks him what the plans are for the ranch, he says, oh, you know, my, my father doesn't do that. He's really good. He's really successful. Everything will be good. These are lines that are including, included in the screenplay version, It kind of shows where Paul Thomas Anderson's vision for that was going, right? That, that H.W. really believes what his father's telling him. And then I think once we get into the, the, uh, the well not being blessed, that's when the conflict is is able to play out. The other thing that's is a very clever change in the script is this bandy tract, this one bit of land that Plainview can't get his hands on. In the book, it's just some property that he basically makes the guy wait for so long that he eventually sells it at the the normal market price, as opposed to oil prices. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson identified there. A really interesting technique that he could utilize, which is, if we've got always got this constant looming danger that there's this one bit of land that hasn't been sold, it takes away some of the strengths from Plainview's position. So there's always that threat that the bandy tract could be could be used to um, to upset the balance. But Plainview ultimately does outmaneuver them there. So yeah, let's talk about. Um, how HW
1: goes goes deaf. Because he was it was too close to the oil well when they were drilling it out and basically oil explodes and then he goes deaf because of it. And actually just as an aside, that scene is actually very well filmed because as you see the drill going in, the camera goes close to it, as if trying to make the audience look in to the well itself, and then when it explodes, it's like you're being blown back because of the explosion and how fast it hits you. So that I thought that was quite clever. And H.W. going deaf is also a test for Daniel because he has to now show how much he really loves his son. But as the film shows that he's more focused on the oil than his son because he he thinks he's hit an absolute gold mine here. And when he goes up to it, himself covered in oil, he says, like, nobody can get at that except for me. And again, that shows his singular, obsessive pursuit of this oil at any cost. And he completely... His son going deaf is almost like an afterthought to any of this.
0: Yeah, that moment is one of the the moments in the story where I put a note, uh, you know, big question mark. What is what is he trying to show us here? Because it's not part of the book at all. It's not part of that story. No. So why was it added? Yeah, I think maybe the the explanation that I jump to here is. That it shows where his priorities lie in terms of the willingness to allow this kid to get injured. This helpless boy, you know, it's he's thrown 25 feet in the air and like a ragdoll and then hits the ground. He's lost his hearing for life. And then, yes, they get him out of the way. But then Plainview goes back. He goes back to fight the fire and... Has that, shares that conversation with, with Kieran Hines and says that, yeah, as he mentioned, it's my oil now. I've proved that there's a lot under this ground. And so then the question becomes what to do with H.W. There's clearly something difficult for him to understand about deafness. He, he doesn't really get it, so he wants to send for a specialist. Yeah. In the original screenplay, he brings a, a teacher down and tries to convince him to move to paradise, uh, this area, Little Boston, and build a new school there and bring all of the other kids because he could do it with the oil money. And the teacher basically says, no, you're going to have to send him to San Francisco. And it allows him to challenge Eli and say, why can't you heal HW? You're meant to be a healer, right? Why can't you heal my son? Why can't you heal his deafness?
1: Mm, yeah. But I think a lot of people see that scene as him showing how much he cares for his son and he's just taking that out that frustration on Eli. But I kind of see it as he's sort of picking on Eli because he knows he can, because Eli is weaker than him and he's stronger. Because what you see afterwards is Eli doing something similar to his own father because he can do it.
0: Kicking down the hierarchy. That yeah. Daniel kicks Eli. Eli kicks Abel. Abel yeah. beats Mary. This there's that cyclical nature yeah. of Violence. of abuse being yeah. introduced there. A little comment, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and also the and it's also symbolic how he Eli's drenched in all this oil, as Daniel slaps him around. Um, mm. Almost like Christ with all the blood on him.
0: And Eli is, he, he doubles down as well. I think both of them start doubling down around this, this point in the story. And Eli doubles down to say, this is proof that if you had let me bless this well, this wouldn't have happened. This is almost divine castigation for, for you not including religion in your enterprise. If the well had been blessed, then this guy, Joe, wouldn't have died then H. W. wouldn't have lost his hearing, and Plainview just, at this point, has no patience for <laughs> for hearing <laughs> these kind of arguments, and he takes it out. and Like you say, he's bigger than him, he's stronger. Than- Eli's meant to be a fifteen year old boy at this stage, and he just beats him up in front of in front of others who just stand by and watch and and uh, uncaring towards towards Eli. Yeah. <laughs> But it does tie into Eli's sense of identity as a bit of a martyr from that point on. Yeah.
1: It's almost like that confirms that he has divine powers. If I bless that well, then your son wouldn't be deaf. Therefore, I've got something that you don't.
0: So this is the midpoint of the film coming up here. And you'll often find that a midpoint is kind of, it resolves the the first half of the story quite neatly, but also changes the story or flips it on its head in some way. And to me, the midpoint, I think, is the arrival of Henry here, who just appears out of nowhere, seemingly. He, he turns up and, and introduces himself to Plainview, says who he is, how he found him, answers some initial questions which are enough for Plainview to believe him and you maybe get the sense that Plainview would not have trusted him at another point in his life, but right now he's desperate. Um yeah. obviously his whole world has been shaken up by HW going death. So maybe he's not as distrustful. Maybe he's seeking that company, someone he can trust, and so he allows himself to believe what Henry is telling him.
1: Mm. Because H.W. is taken out as his partner in his company, then Henry takes his place as a more suitable partner. And because also Henry actually has experience of digging oil, then Daniel obviously sees this as an opportunity, even if if he has a little bit of a doubt about his intentions, Henry's intentions. He sees an opportunity, as he does every time he meets someone.
0: What do you make of the scene where Henry sets fire to the house, and you know uh, has a, a line of oil uh, leading up to Henry's bed and sets it alight?
1: I think that that's H. W. Recognizing that his competition, and he wants to take out his competition Mm. and in in a weird way, that's almost him showing that he has a little bit of Daniel in him.
0: Yeah. Nurture versus nature. Yeah. That he's been nurtured by this, this man who is so competitive.
1: Yeah. And you know, when Daniel says, I want nobody else to succeed but me, I think HW recognizes that Henry could be taking away success that belongs to him, because he's been there since the beginning. But Henry comes over and is almost taking away his work, which is a little bit odd because it's you're talking about an adult man versus a you know an eight year old boy. But
0: but yeah, they both are. They both would need Plainview. That their only ways to succeed are to to latch on to Plainview. Yes. It's important here as well. Like So obviously H.W. is is sent away to go to a school where he can learn sign language and be treated a lot better than he would be just living on the land around the oil wells um, with no education. Something that Daniel, Daniel was imparting his education to him verbally. I think we get the sense that Plainview himself might be probably only... A little bit better than illiterate he knows how to sign his own name and and these things but we don't particularly see him reading he hasn't taught hw how to read yeah. if he had taught him how to read then communicating when he went death would have been easier because he could have written notes to him but without the ability to for both of them to correspond through writing they have no way of communicating Blaine offered a chance to retreat here, and I think when you're doing a character study, you watch this character fall, you know, almost Citizen Kane style, just a a collapse towards the end of their morality of what they stand for when they realize that everything they've been chasing has been has been wrong. It's important to offer that character a chance to retreat, to to take a different path, and that's when he's offered the million dollars uh, by another oil company, and yeah. he and he could theoretically just just live in complete prosperity with, with HW, and he chooses to go on.
1: Because it's almost as if Daniel thinks that just accepting the money is almost like cheating, or maybe admitting defeat. He wants his struggle to end up as his creation, that he, what he's trying to create something, and he wants to do it 100% by his own work with nobody's help and it all belongs to him.
0: And that's the parallel with Eli's pride as well. This is his pride. It's this inability to see anything else at that point. What else would I do with myself? He
1: asks. (laughs) Yeah. And it shows that for some people that they like the struggle as well as the end result.
0: Yeah. it's, It's tied up so much with his identity at this point. And this is uh, shortly after this, this is when he realizes that Henry is not who he says he is. And it's, this is something that happened with me when I watched uh, Scorsese's Silence and the first time I saw There Will Be Blood as well. I always sensed there was much more to the story than I was getting the first time around. Yeah. Certain great films, I think you need to watch them a couple of times before they fully sink in. And I, I had not entirely maybe picked up on that moment. Where he mentions the peach tree dance to to Henry, that that was the moment that revealed that he was an imposter, because it was a it's clear it's meant to be a reference back to something that they should both know from childhood, and when Henry doesn't laugh at this kind of inside joke from from the town they grew up in from Fond du Lac, that's when the screenplay describes the paranoia has started in Daniel. It's just a really small throwaway line and then he realizes this guy is not who he, he's meant to be
1: yeah and after that they go to a, like a brothel and Henry's drunk and asks uh, Daniel for money and you could tell Daniel's just sitting there like stone faced and he, he reluctantly gives him money but you can just You can tell that he feels hurt, like genuinely hurt by this and taken advantage of.
0: Yeah, and what what hurt means to a person like that because some people might feel hurt, or you know, this person misled me. He starts to see it as, how could I have not seen all the angles for a second? Yeah. He realizes that he actually showed this moment of weakness and doubles down i'm never going to show weakness again i'm never going to let anyone else in again it's Mm. just me against the world from this point on and this is something that again is slightly drawn from from the source material in the book that sinclair describes j arnold ross as being obsessed with not letting anyone get their hands on his money because that's once you get to a certain level of of financial success unfortunately you can see everyone around you as just wanting to profit from you to seeing you as a pawn in their game and and it you know it really highlights how alienating and lonely and depressing that is at the top and why would anyone actually want to go that route if that's the way they have to live their lives as a paranoid maniac and that kind of happens in any seeking of power it's obviously tied up with personality but I mean, similar things happen to, to leaders around the world where they've, you know, they've reached the top. Maybe a good example is Stalin, that just once he made it to the top, he never trusted anyone, constantly saw people. He couldn't see any friends around him at all. He just wanted to kill everyone <laughs> to, to yes. preserve himself.
1: Because the only way is down, and anybody that's below you is a potential enemy because they want to be in your position, and they will, if the opportunity arises, take you down. So it's almost like they feel they have to be extra vigilant and treat everyone as an enemy, not a friend or ally. Yeah.
0: And what is Henry? I mean, Henry's a brilliant character. You know, Other writers might have gone into much more detail about who Henry is and his whole backstory. We never find out. Uh, I think that's, that's much more interesting. It's much more terrifying, is that there's just been this imposter living among him for so long, and then
1: we never get answers to
0: the questions.
1: Like, uh, we don't really know how... When Daniel confronts him with the gun and asks him who he is, and Henry tells a story about Daniel's brother, who... Died, but we don't really know how he died.
0: Yeah, that question is left open as well, which is very nice, um because the the fake Henry claims he wasn't hurt; he died of tuberculosis. Yeah, but we're still taking at this point. There's no way to take his word. Yeah, because everything else he said has up to that point has been a lie. So is this true? He he is arguing that it is, but because
1: even me, I don't trust Henry when he says when he tells the story about how he acquired Daniel's brother's diary, like something in me tells me that he kind of killed Daniel's real brother for the opportunity to take on his persona for his own egotistic ambitions. Something in me tells me that. Yeah. But obviously we don't, we obviously don't know for sure. And the question's very open and that's why he's a very interesting character.
0: And that's when we get back into the, there's a, there's a lot more biblical emphasis, I think, in the, the last third of the film. And this might go back into that question again of, is Plainview doing the right thing by killing Henry? In, in an Old Testament way, if Henry had killed his real brother and taken away that opportunity for him to meet his real brother and this guy is a murderer, then it's an eye for an eye. Yeah. Or should Plainview have turned the other cheek and let this imposter just get away? He swears he'll never come back and and see Daniel again.
1: But he takes the harsh Old Testament view as opposed to the forgiving New Testament view.
0: Yeah, and that I think is once... This is the kind of point of no return for Daniel um, because he he commits one of the worst crimes that you can commit and then even when he's offered the opportunity to repent for it, he does it under false pretenses.
1: Because mm, he's not really sorry. But, but <laughs> he doesn't... Not at all. No, he, do, he feels no guilt or remorse or anything that could suggest that he regrets anything he did. Because so long as it was in the mm-hmm. pursuit of oil and his pipeline and his own personal pride and ambition, then he genuinely sees nothing, there was nothing wrong with what he did.
0: And we compare that to how he was at the beginning when this guy, Ailman dies in an accident and plain view, even with some cynical motivation behind it, but he takes on the responsibility of raising a baby. Uh, he brings up this this child which he doesn't have to do and we you know this character has transformed from that into one who is digging a grave in the woods in the middle of the night and throwing a body in there It
1: also shows the evolution because at the beginning he's using that pickaxe to dig for silver to create something while at the end he's using a shovel or pickaxe to dig a grave because he's killed something he's taking a life away the opposite of creating something so that shows how everything's coming full circle for daniel
0: there's a very small but interesting note that uh paul thomas anderson includes in in that scene as well yeah in in the 2005 screenplay which is the early version which didn't change much, interestingly. A lot of screenplays get rewritten a lot and changed drastically, but the 2005 version of his screenplay is pretty much what the film ends up being. There's just this this little note here where he says that the 22 caliber pistol that he uses to kill Henry is a specific type of pistol that a hit from this gun will ricochet around the temple for a moment and there will be no blood. And I thought that was a very interesting line because it's, you know, obviously relating to the title. If you do go back and watch that scene carefully, there is no blood when he kills Henry, as opposed to, for example, when he kills Eli, the blood seeps out all over the bowling alley. Yeah. And I, I don't know, you know, it's, it's just a very minor detail, but I do think it tells you something about the symbolism changing the name of this story from oil to there will be blood. It's much more tied into Old Testament um, symbolism and and, uh, imagery. The title there will be blood comes from Exodus and it's when the Lord instructs Moses to take a rod and turn all of the water in Egypt into blood. And it's one one of the punishments to pharaoh for keeping the people of israel enslaved and it's just that is where this this symbolism comes from this idea that something which is really really good water which gives life which you know people should in a biblical sense kind of rejoice in just turns into blood something that you can't drink that's that's horrifying to drink like this this imagery must have been quite horrific to people in in those days and then I think, you know, in the film, we're seeing so much of that early on when they're wading around in the kind of noxious fumes and all that dark muck at the, as they're digging into the, the pits. Uh, the scene you mentioned with Eli being rolled around in the, the mud and the oil on the ground. This, this link between oil and blood, I think, is a prominent symbol throughout yeah. the film.
1: Because I think oil is the blood it's seen as the cause of all this sin of greed and lust and covetousness. But also, if we want to read this very politically, the royal oil has played in international political economy. Obviously, a lot of American foreign policy since the Second World War has involved oil in you know, the Middle East and its relationships with certain regimes like Saudi Arabia, Obviously you could look at its relationship with Iraq and other countries have been relayed to this substance partially not Exclusively but partially to this substance called oil, which is the blood that Circulates around the arteries of the world economy global capitalist Mm. economy So you could see it in that way.
0: Yeah, and these early biblical times the the old testament times where you you would sacrifice animals to god you would sacrifice a goat or a lamb yeah and this this being a key part of the ritual and just the extraction of blood it's just it is all tied up and of course then there's jesus in the new testament mm. to, and yeah. the being the blood of the lamb and then this is the next few scenes, the last few scenes in this time period, before we jump forward 15 years, are about Eli's church washing Daniel in the blood of the lamb, which is just the baptismal water. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I I mean, now we're talking about it, it feels like he drives home this point so much, but I think it it did take some reading. into. I don't think when you're watching the film, you're like, oh my God, uh, st- stop with the blood symbolism. I think it's just... <laughs> is casually kind of thrown in there and it it is a little bit subtle but then of course if you start reading into it you'll find that there is a lot of a lot of um referencing and and symbolism in in the story he's trying to tell
1: yeah because the the blood symbolism because the jews or other pre-christian religions would sacrifice these goats as a scapegoat that's what this is where the phrase scapegoat comes from where all the sins of Mm -hmm. the tribe would be heaped onto this sacrificial lamb or goat. And then they would slit the throat, push it out. And when it dies, they feel that their sins are cleansed with it. And obviously the Christian take on this is that Christ is the collective scapegoat of the human race for all of its sins. And that he offered himself or God, offered his only son to be this scapegoat for humanity and give humanity a second chance at redemption.
0: Yep, and this is reversed with Daniel. Daniel goes to atone without really meaning it. Mm -hmm. And Eli's church is well on
1: the way to becoming corrupted itself. But his atonement is a second... His redemption is a second chance for his pipeline. That's how he sees it. Yeah, he gets what he wants
0: or what he thinks he wants. And then we jump forward 15 years and we can just quickly discuss the ending. Jumps forward 15 years and he has become a full-on alcoholic. Essentially, H.W. has bridged that gap that Bunny bridges in, in Upton Sinclair's oil in terms of wanting to be more involved with the common man. And wanting to live a life that isn't just purely motivated by wealth, he's married Mary, who is Eli's sister and uh, the daughter of Abel, um, and found you know genuine love there. They have you know she's learned um, she's learned sign language, and they've been friends, companions since they were children, and now they've they've fallen in love. But they've also got married within this church, within her religion, and so. H.W. is caught in between those two worlds and not seeing the conflict as dramatically as Daniel
1: and Eli do. Yeah, and you can see that his marriage shows the difference between him and Daniel, that he has managed to find happiness by marrying his true love. And Daniel is left a miserable old man who is extremely resentful, angry, bitter, and despite achieving what he wanted, is not happy. He doesn't feel satisfied or fulfilled. I think that's another message I think you can take from this film, that money and success, it's a cliche, but but it's there, that money and success doesn't give you happiness in fact it could work the opposite way against you
0: yeah he's living in a prison by this point his body is failing him he's cooped up in this mansion he's just collapsing on the floor of the bowling alley yeah just blackout drunk he hasn't found any additional freedom or benefit from the wealth that he's accumulated he sees enemies everywhere this ends with him telling hw he's his competitor now he doesn't want to see him again, and just tries to stab him with that final... The last weapon he has at his disposal is to tell him he's not his son, and therefore he doesn't matter to him.
1: Yeah, and it's funny how that scene is filmed, because when they're first having this conversation, the camera is looking up at Daniel to show he has the power, and it's straight on at HW to show how he's uh, in the inferior position. Then later on, the balance is overturned, and it's HW who's portrayed in a more superior position. And as he walks away, he's just focusing on him, and you can hear uh, Daniel screaming and well sh- shouting in the background, "Bastard from a basket!" And it's falling uh, on deaf ears, quite literally, so to speak. <laughs> mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> But that's, it's, like, that is the, the one light in this film, is that H.W. does get away from it, that he does overcome the obstacles that he's, he's had in his life and find some happiness, something that Daniel just cannot do. And it's all to do with the, the money and, and finding balance in life. A reader who reads Oil will then know more about what happens to this character in terms of his involvement in in socialist causes and and kind of uh, rescinding his his father's wealth. And that's potentially one way this could play out. The film doesn't need to tell us what happens. It, it just wants to focus from this point on on, on what happens when Eli
1: comes to, to visit Daniel. I think you see then that the tables have turned on... The relationship between Eli and Daniel because earlier in the film, in Eli's church it was Eli getting Daniel to confess his sins and to affirm the existence of God now Daniel is the one because Eli is desperate for money so Daniel gets Eli to say he is a false prophet, that God is a superstition so that he can get what he wants. So it's payback for Daniel.
0: Yep. And he's been he's been holding on to this for fifteen years. I, I love it. Like it's <laughs> such a a wonderful climax to this film. It's just this this sense of you debased me, you humiliated me in front of this room full of people fifteen years ago. I'm going to do the exact same thing to you. You made me swear allegiance to your religion. I'm going to make you uh i'm going to make you deny that religion in front of me yeah it's a really really powerful moment and then of course it's all just again set up with with this last blow that last bit of information that he has for eli is of course that there is no oil left on the land that eli thought he owned yeah that um on the bandy tract yeah it's all gone He's he's had his his straw. What didn't he say? Um, sucking up the
1: milkshake. <laughs> yeah, didn't he say also that I drank the blood of lamb from the bandy tracks? Something along those lines. Yep. Which again is very religious symbolism.
0: And it just cuts to the heart of Eli's ego. It's broken at this point, mm-hmm. and clearly he's. He's been caught up in the speculation and the subsequent loss of the, the entire stock market in the, at the start of the Great Depression, and seeing that this isn't just in the same way that uh, Daniel has been on this upward path in terms of accumulating more and more wealth, supposedly by working, working, working on the oil drilling. Eli has seen it as, the more I put into this charge, the more the Lord will reward me and give me more money. And it doesn't work that way either, Mm. because it's it's the wrong place for his priorities to be. If he was a genuine preacher, he wouldn't care about the money. But of course, when we see him here, he's got this golden crucifix that he's wearing around his neck now. That's something that the poor boy, Eli, that we met at the start of
1: the film would never have done. Yeah. obviously at the end is he beats him up with a bowling pin and there will be blood, like the oil that was seeping out of the ground earlier in the film.
0: So, and what are your thoughts when when the film ends? What what kind of sensation are you left with? What, what story do you think it told us overall? On the one hand,
1: I felt satisfied that Eli got his comeuppance, but also felt sad <laughs> that this is just how it ends for Daniel, that this is how it was always going to end, that he was never going to be satisfied by achieving what he wants. Because of his personality and how much of a sociopath he was, that he could, he was, he could never have had any genuine human connection like H.W. has with his wife, with his newly wedded wife. Uh, He couldn't love anybody, he couldn't have a companion of any kind. He doesn't have friends, he only has transactional relationships with people. It's as if he is like the most cynical kind of capitalist, but in all, encompassing every part of his life.
0: One thing I think as well is that he probably doesn't go to prison... Eli's murder mm-hmm. this there's, there's potentially his wealth is so vast that he might get away with it and that's I mean it's not a question that is is answered in the film but certainly the way his his uh his butler reacts to seeing it it's not one of immediate panic and running to call the police there's just a sense that maybe this like uh like the death of Henry could be covered up as well yeah of course, the film doesn't tell us exactly what happens, but we, we might assume from knowing enough about what America was like in the 19, 1920s that money probably could buy your innocence.
1: Yeah, and to make a more general point, I think the film, I think, is looking at what you may call the American entrepreneur who is a very central protagonist in you know, American ideology. And I think Daniel Plainview is part of what you may call a tradition of this kind of character, like Charles Foster Kane, Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos in more recent times, like men who are ruthless, cutthroat and very ambitious, but also who have played a part in creating modern America and shaping you know, the global capitalist economy because Plainview's business was oil, Foster Kane was journalism, Zuckerberg, Jobs and Bezos, you know, you know, modern technology. And I also think that the film is also asking the question about the costs of success. What are the costs of succeeding and getting what you want? At, and whether a society that allows people like Daniel Plainview to succeed is a society that is can be described in any way as good.
0: Yeah, that's a very good insight, and I think that's uh, the perfect place for us to leave the recording. So yeah, thank you, Ralph, for taking the time to discuss with me. There will be blood. It's it's a fascinating Thanks. film, and I think uh, it's one of those films that you can you can dive into time and time again. So I hope that to, you know for our listeners that uh, we've done it justice. From my side, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and thank you for, for joining me.
1: Thank you. I've enjoyed this conversation as well. Thank you.